Well, I've worked out that there's only one thing that will slow down a Malaysian driver. It's not the traffic lights. It's not a pedestrian. It's not even a good Nazilamak at the shops on the side of the road. The only thing that will slow down a Malaysian driver is a good Malaysian thunderstorm. The rain buckets down like someone has picked up the ocean and dropped it from the sky. Soon the, the roads turn to rivers, the fields look like they're swimming pools and the traffic stretches as far as the eye can see. That is, unless you can, can think of an alternative to get around it. Uh, perhaps something like getting out of your car and trying in Jesus' fashion to lift up your hands, look to the sky and yell out, Stop! Be still! At that point, a, a car swishes past and puts the water up into your face. As, as much as we would like to be able to do the miracles of Jesus, I think the best we can do is to say, be opened as we come up to the automatic doors at the shopping centre. The Bible, the, the, the Jesus of the Bible is an extraordinary character. He's completely in control. He commands the wind and the waves and they obey him. He commands demons and they leave people. When people try to kill him, he just walks straight on through. At his touch, people are healed. At his word, the dead are raised. By his authority, sins are forgiven and his opponents are put to shame. Everyone who meets this Jesus is left utterly amazed, thinking, who is this man? But in today's passage, we meet a very different Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we meet a Jesus who is beside himself. A Jesus who is overcome with sorrow to the point of death. A Jesus flat on his face, pouring out his soul to his Father. And we can't help thinking, why? What kind of storm could make this Jesus be reduced to such a state? Our passage this morning is such a precious gem of the Bible because it gives us an, a, a window into Jesus' intimate relationship with his Father and what the cross meant for him. Well, the journey to the cross started back in chapter 16. Uh, There at the turning point of Matthew's Gospel, Peter recognises that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, come to save people from their sins. And it's from that critical time forward that Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must suffer many things, be killed and be raised again. And as the story continues, Matthew records how Jesus fearlessly and courageously walks step by step by step, closer and closer to his death. As he he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 21, he's welcomed as king, But less than a week later, by chapter 26, the chief priests and the the leaders are are trying to plot his death and his own friend Judas has betrayed him. The hourglass of Jesus' life 
is quickly running out. The time for Jesus' body to be broken and his blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins has almost arrived. And in the face of his death, Jesus is unflinching. Jesus is resolute. Jesus is determined to walk the path to the cross. And it's here we pick up the story at Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. Please follow along with me. Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Well, having shared the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus goes out with them to the Mount of Olives. Here we meet our familiar Jesus, completely in control. More than five times in this chapter alone, he has predicted that he is going to die. And here we're met with one more ominous prediction. That very night, Jesus' disciples will desert him. But how does Jesus know this is the case? It's because that's what's written in the scriptures. And so he quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, which is up on the screen. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. This prophecy speaks of a good shepherd who is identified with God himself. He is the man standing next to God who will be mysteriously struck by God as he bears his judgment. When this happens, the sheep will be scattered. But what will finally result after the judgment of God's people is that God will refine and restore a remnant, a a, a people left over to be his new covenant people. Jesus understands that this passage here is talking about him. He is the good shepherd. He is the man who is standing next to God, who will be stricken by God. He is the one who will be deserted by his flock, but finally will refine and restore a new covenant people for God. Peter is so rightly appalled by this prediction, that he speaks up indignantly in true Peter fashion. Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 33. Jesus, I followed you for three years, everywhere you have gone. How could you possibly suggest that I would desert you? Verse 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, 
you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But Jesus knows the scripture will be fulfilled. Very soon he will be stricken by God and the sheep will desert him. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to desert Jesus when he comes under fire. When your family attacks your faith in Jesus. When your friends mock you for following Jesus. When you suffer at uni or at work for being a Christian. Jesus' disciples here will surely stumble, but they will not fail. The good news, verse 32, is that after Jesus is raised from the dead, they will follow him, they will be restored, and they will follow him to the day they die. And though we too may stumble in the Christian life, true disciples of Christ will stick with their master to the end, whatever it will cost them. But there's something that's much more significant going on here. Through these events, Matthew is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is gradually being abandoned. Firstly, he's rejected by the the leaders of, of Israel. Verses 3 to 5. Then he will be abandoned by his friends. But finally, as he goes to the cross, he'll be forsaken by his heavenly Father. God's divine clock is ticking. Tick, tick. The time for humanity to be saved through Jesus is fast approaching. And it's at this point, as they arrive at their destination, the Garden of Gethsemane, that we meet this very different Jesus. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over over there and pray. Gethsemane, uh, which literally means oil press, uh, was probably a a garden area amongst the the Mount of Olives. It's probably a place that Jesus visited uh, often with his disciples, John tells us. So in coming here, Jesus is purposely giving himself into Judas's hands. And it is here, as the reality of the cross looms ominously before him, that we find Jesus utterly beside himself. Verse 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. (coughs) These are some of the most strong words of emotion in the whole of the New Testament. Literally, Jesus is in an anguish of wretchedness and distress. His overwhelming sorrow reveals a heart broken almost to the point of death itself. Have you ever felt anguish like that? 
anguish that paralyzes you. Just like any human being, Jesus felt anguish. And at that time, he wanted his friends, Peter, James and John, to be with him. But this was a prayer only Jesus could pray. So verse 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father. Friends, this is holy ground, actually. We have recorded here the intimate prayer of the unique Son of God with his Father. Here we have a precious glimpse into Jesus' heart that so loves his Father and a sobering insight into what the cross would cost him. Jesus pleads, verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And as he prays, Luke adds, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What has reduced Jesus to such a wretched state? What could have possibly left this man so confident and in control, weeping in anguish, flat on his face, as he pleads to his father? It's the prospect of drinking the cup. We read of that that awful cup in, in the Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 25, which for me is one of the most disturbing passages of the Old Testament. Let me remind you from Jeremiah 15, sorry, Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hands this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. We also see the cup in, in, in Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup is the metaphor for the just anger of God poured out on the wicked. It is the unrestrained, raging ocean of God's wrath poured out on sin. We don't like talking much about the anger of God these days, do we? Much rather talk about his love. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. Whilst we rarely possess it, except perhaps when we see a sexual assault or foreign workers being, uh, being oppressed, God always possesses it. His anger is always, always measured and always right. But before we go and point the finger at the wickedness of other people, we must remember that there is three fingers pointing back at ourselves. For we ourselves are amongst the wicked. We've all committed the greatest wickedness of all. We've rejected God as the rightful ruler of our lives. 
that he made us and gave us every good thing that we have. Instead of thanking him, we have dethroned him and taken his glory for our own. And God is rightfully angry. We deserve to drink from the cup of God's righteous wrath, to die and to be eternally separated from his presence and his blessing forever in hell. But God is so gracious that it has been his plan since the creation of the world to save us by taking that anger on himself. In one terrible moment, as, as Jesus hangs on the cross, God himself, in the person of Jesus, will drink the cup of his own wrath. Father and Son will suffer the agony of separation instead of us. Jesus will die in our place so that we can be set free. But as the time looms closer, Jesus is terrified. Jesus is beside himself. Jesus is in anguish, sorrowful, even to death. And so he prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If there is any other way to save humanity, if there is any other way to make people right with you, if there is any other way without me needing to face your righteous wrath, please, please provide it. Such is the horror of facing the wrath of God. Jesus returns from his anguished prayers and finds his friends are sleeping. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Already his disciples have failed him. They just had a big meal and it's too much. But they need to watch and pray that they may be able to withstand the temptation to desert Jesus when it comes. Verse 42, again for the second time Jesus went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. This time Jesus prays, but there is a slight but significant variation. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So gradually there is a conscious recognition that the cup cannot pass. He must drink it. And Jesus is willing. He says, your will be done. Our instinctive thought is that the reason that Jesus went to the cross was for me, to die for me. 
And that is, of course, true enough. But do you see, the primary reason for Jesus going to the cross was that he treasured the will of his Father. As much as we would prefer otherwise, Jesus is not our cosmic servant. Jesus did not go to the cross just because of me. And such a self-centred view of the cross is simply not sufficient for us. Worse still might be to think that Jesus came to rescue me from my employment problems or Jesus came to rescue me from my relationship problems or Jesus came to help me make money, to pass my exams or to make me find a parking spot. Back in the 1600s, there was a radical change in thought known as the Copernican Revolution. Up until that point, people had thought that the earth was the centre of the universe and the sun and the stars and everything else revolved around it. But then it was shown that actually it was not the earth at the centre but the sun and the earth was going around the sun. Then suddenly everything made sense. We need to have our own Copernican revolution. We need to realise that life is not about me. Life is about God's honour and glory. Life is not about our will. Life is about God's will being done. And the cross is not just about me. The cross is first and foremost about Jesus' loving obedience to his Father. But such is the infinite wisdom of God that Jesus' loving obedience to his Father's perfect will at one and the same time secures our salvation. Hebrews 5 verse 7 to 9 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what, was, through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus' prayer was heard in the garden. Though, in the end, God's loving answer was to deny his request. It was not because Jesus didn't have enough faith. It was not because Jesus had sinned. It was not because Jesus was asking wrongly. It was perfectly right. It was because he knew that the cross was the only way by which Jesus could be eternally exalted as the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. Jesus models the right response to treasure the Father's will and to entrust our lives into his hands. Friends, do we pray in faith like this? Are we courageous enough to desire the Father's will even above our own comforts and passions, Jesus gives us a model to follow, to ask in faith, to seek the Father's will and to trust God's answer 
knowing it will be for our good. Rather than praying, the disciples, as we saw, have returned to their slumbers. Verse 45, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As Judas, his betrayer, approaches, it is plain for all to see what the Father's will is. The only way is for Jesus to drink the cup of God's righteous wrath all the way to its dregs. The hour has come. The hour for Jesus to accomplish his mission of salvation. We read on verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The big theme of this section is is point three, that the scripture must be fulfilled. Firstly, we see the shocking fulfilment of verse 21, where Jesus predicted that Jesus, so that Judas, sorry, his own friend, would betray him. For a for a rabbi's disciple to kiss his master was a special honour. To do this uninvited was a studied insult. Judas is publicly rejecting Jesus. But also we see here a renewed determination in Jesus now that he has emerged from the garden. You see, Jesus has seen his father's will and in treasuring his father's will he is now determined to see it brought to completion. He will make sure that the scriptures are fulfilled. Verse 51, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures might, of the prophets might be fulfilled and all his disciples left him and fled. As Jesus is arrested, he won't let his disciples protect him. He will not evade arrest. Jesus is speaking the truth when he says that he could have in an instant called down twelve legions of angels to come and rescue him from their hands. But Jesus' way is not like the violence 
of the chief priests and the elders. He treasures his father's will and so he is willing to submit his life into their hands. At every point, Jesus could have have avoided his death, but he refused to do so, either by evasion or supernatural power. From the moment he set his face to Jerusalem, he has walked step by step to his death. He went to Gethsemane where he knew Judas would find him. He walked out to meet his betrayer. He encouraged Judas to carry out his task and he would not fight to stop his arrest. No, Jesus is completely convinced that his mission must be one of suffering and rejection. He must go to the cross and drink the cup of God's wrath. For that is the loving will of his Father. For Jesus, there was no other option but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That issue was settled in Gethsemane. And so the scriptures are fulfilled. As Jesus is arrested like a criminal, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressions. As the shepherd is struck and his disciples flee, the prophecy of Zechariah is fulfilled. And in the times ahead, every other prophecy will be fulfilled as well. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be sacrificed as our Passover lamb. He will drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. And of course he will be raised again as the Lord of all. As the clock strikes twelve, all of history is reaching its climactic fulfilment. We finish today considering some of the substantial implications of all this. Firstly, the events here shout loud and clear that the cross was the only way that sinners could be made right with God. People often hate the claim of Christians that Jesus is the only way that we can be made right with God. But if there was any other way, would not God have granted the request of his beloved son? If there was any other way, would not the father have refused to tolerate the pain of forsaking his own son as he poured out his righteous wrath? Of course. But there was no other way. If he did not go to the cross, there would be no salvation. There would be no hope. There would only be despair. There would be no escape from that dreadful, awful, righteous anger of God. Friends, there is no doubt that without the death of Jesus, every person in this room, you and me, Every person in Malaysia, your friends, your family, your colleagues, every person in this world would be eternally lost in the judgment of God in hell. But because of Jesus' obedience to death, 
God has opened up one way that we can be saved. Not our good works, not any other religion, not by church attendance or ministry or anything else like that. Jesus' death alone is the source of eternal salvation. Faith in him is the only way we can be made right with God. Have you turned to Jesus and accepted God's offer of mercy? Have you been rescued from eternity in hell? Won't you turn to Jesus, this Jesus, and be saved? Secondly, we must never take the perfect obedience of Jesus for granted. He's not sort of like Superman with the, you know, the bullets of temptation just, just bouncing off him, you know, ping, ping, ping. Gethsemane shows us that the cross costs Jesus more than we can imagine. Yet because of his great love for his father, he accepted his father's will. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. We must never let the words, Jesus died for our sins, just roll off our tongue. Each time we consider Jesus' obedience unto death, it should bring forth in us a fountain of joy. It should stir up overwhelming gratitude from our hearts. It should bring us to our knees in worship of our Saviour. Jesus indeed is the centre point of all eternity. He is the fulfilment of the scriptures. He is the risen Lord of all. And the only right response is to treasure him and to live for him. Sometimes obedience to Jesus will be costly. But we have in Jesus an example to follow. As we look to Jesus, we see that Whatever suffering the path of obedience takes us through, it's not worth comparing to the glory that lies at the end. May we continue to serve Jesus with all of our strength to that wonderful day when we meet him afresh in his eternal kingdom.